everyone, I'm your host Amanda and this is Light It Up. Continuing our journey on those in the shadows, I'm joined by Anna Nguyen as we cover the first Australians. So Anna, similar to our coverage so far on women, there is still very little we know about first Australian interactions with lighthouses. Would you hazard a guess as to as to why that might be the case? I mean, firstly, I just want to preface by saying um, I'm not an Aboriginal woman and I think that is something that's really important when we're having these types of discussions because the way that we do storytelling and narrative telling, as I had discussed with you in our women episode, Western history is covered in a way that's really different to the way that Aboriginal history is covered. And I'm not going to lecture people on on this country, but there's just such a diversity of storytelling, culture and language in Australia by virtue of the fact that we're covered in literally hundreds of Aboriginal countries in the country called Australia. And so it was always going to be a very difficult exercise post-colonisation to actually be able to collate those stories because Western people don't really recognise the way that Aboriginal people um, tell their stories and uh, they don't hold the same sort of legitimacy to oral histories in the way that Aboriginal people in many of the various countries, Australia, that they hold dear to them and their culture. So I think by virtue of all of those barriers, that is probably the reason that there aren't that many stories that are at least accessible to our Western ears, but they do exist out there amongst community. And I think we need to do more of an effort to actually engage with community, earn their trust, and then through that, learn about the really very history, because I would hazard a guess that Aboriginal people probably were very critical to um, maybe not necessarily manning the lighthouses, but doing their own version of lighthousing and all the the duties that comes with that. I think you've made so many cool points just then in your introduction because we have to remind ourselves that in as much as we celebrate lighthouses, want to preserve and promote them and they hold enormous heritage value to us and were integral to the colonisation of Australia, that would also have hastened the destruction of the first Australian way of life, which similar to what we've been discussing, you know, whoever writes history dictates what happened. And the first Australians, they wouldn't have had the written record as the English would have had. The English wouldn't have recognised what they would have considered a form of oral history and passing down that knowledge through that way, through the culture and practice of culture, which is probably why that bit of the story is being lost, but also probably why they were never really part of the lighthouse story because that was unfortunately kind of the end of that era. I think it's also remiss of us not to say that this destruction is still going on now. Um, you know, as recent as two years or so, uh, Rio Tinto destroyed a very central Aboriginal, it, as a part of their mining, they destroyed it, but it had all these paintings and all of these inscriptions from thousands of years ago. And that's that's where their storytelling lies and we're literally destroying it in the means of making money. I just want to say that we, we still definitely are participating in that destruction process of history of people um, of this very country. And we have a long way to go to try and, you know, make amends and 
like I say, this podcast, this episode is but one small way in which we can literally shine a light on these stories. And, you know, unfortunately not necessarily through the first Australians themselves, at least in this episode, um, but, you know, doing what we can at least as part of this narrative. I've compiled what I could from my interviews on this topic to date. So let's take a listen. Do you know much about the timing and overlap of the construction of light stations and the removal of the Indigenous population from Lighthouse Station Light? The Aborigines were virtually cleaned out, killed off, murdered and otherwise chased away uh, long, long before the lights really came into, into being. Um, I mean, all, all of those areas, Cape Sorrel was another, like the Aborigines were, were all over Tassie uh, in the early days, uh, but Tasmania, uh, Hobart was settled in, in 1803 and by about 1820 there were virtually no Abos left. Um, they uh, they chased them, they murdered them, they shot them, they uh, herded them uh, all around the place, and uh, uh, those that were left ended up out on Flinders and uh, Flinders Island and Cape Barren Island, and uh, almost none left in Tassie. I've just finished reading a book uh, written by a local lass uh, about Truganini, and uh, it's well uh, if you want to know about what happened to the Tasmanian Aborigines, uh, read that and cry. <laughs> I know there's a truth-telling going on at the moment as well. Yeah, um, no, it, was, uh, it was pretty bad. But, yeah, see, um, the, the oldest light in Tasmania is, is the, the Iron Pot or, down, or the Derwent Light at the mouth of the Derwent River, and that was that was built in. That, that was the fourth. That's the oldest light in Tassie and the fourth oldest in Australia, and, and that would never have been a, a, an Aboriginal living place, but but, but, uh, but the light was built there. Jeez, I, that was, I think that wasn't until about the 1840s or something or other. So by that time, <clears throat> there would have been virtually no Tassie Aboriginals left. So, no, they, they, they weren't actually chased out to, to build a lighthouse. They would have long, been long gone by the time the lights were actually built, I, I, I believe. That makes sense. They would have had to settle the land and clear it really first before. You know, you can even think about constructing such huge buildings, really. Back, back in those days, there would have been no thought about uh, about who owned the land or anything else. Uh, the, the bombs had come in and taken over Tasmania and it was their land. <laughs> yeah, if they wanted to build something somewhere, they just went and built it. Mm. If, if the Aboriginals, if there were any Aboriginals left at the time, uh, they got chased away and got shot. I mean, there, there were all, all sorts of horrible stories uh, when you go back in history in the early days of Hobart and, and well, any of the, the lands around Tasmania, you know, with the, the rich landowners that were given land grants, uh, uh, they were just given the land. Uh, there was no thought about the fact that it was already owned and lived on by the Aborigines. They just became a pest. So the landowners chased them away and shot them or whatever. Um there was uh, there was no uh, excuse me uh, or anything. It was just right. That's ours, and that's it. Uh, it's not not a pretty story. No, not at all. It's unfortunate, you know, part of unfortunately Australian history. Each of the lighthouses um, that we've been talking about, or at least certainly the ones that um, stood higher on 
on landscapes like um, headlands, they were they were very important places because anywhere as a viewing place is already important on the coastline um, for First Nations people. Um, the but often they were also the places where the the creators came either in from the in, in from the sea. So I don't think national parks. I think national parks might be growing their information uh, in understandings more now of the significance of the landscapes where the lighthouses are. But there's so much more work to be done there. But I know, for example, Byron Bay. Um, Cape Byron is, if my understanding is correct, um, is that place is Welgum and it means shoulder and it's um, it's viewed as part of the landscape, a landscape path that then goes out to see to um, Julian Rocks. So it's all part of a much larger landscape. We often see the, the ocean and the land as being different, two different concepts. Indigenous people often see the creator that, that they're entirely intermeshed. Um, although those, the lighthouse landscapes were and are very significant to local Indigenous people, so Arakwal for Cape Byron or Welgan. It was never going to be, and not that Aboriginal families would ever have found themselves accepted into the service because of um, even those Second World War men who came back once, you would probably know some of the history of Aboriginal men who returned, um, they might have been on somewhat equal footing whilst they were overseas. Once they came home, they were um, not given any of the same um, assistance, usually, as white men who had returned as servicemen. But also, it really would not have been a very good life, I wouldn't have thought, for many uh, Indigenous families where family and kin become our so central. It, the lighthouse family life was very much along the lines of a sort of European individualism and the, the nuclear family network was the thing that the service wanted to be able to um, make the most of. I think your people, reflection but, that they were, you know, important vantage points both for the Indigenous people and ultimately for navigators. I think I did hear a snippet from somewhere. I can't remember where I read it, but a lot of our major highways are based on, you know, leveraging the knowledge of the First Nations people. And it sounds like it's too, too dissimilar from the position of lighthouses. Yeah, a lot of our a lot of our main roads are built over the top of Aboriginal roads. Because in Tasmania, the Tasmania Aboriginal was all rounded up and sent to Flinders Island. Mm. where they eventually died out. But what happened was, of course, Flinders Island, there used to be a lot of uh, whalers visit the islands. And, of course, they had four or five Aboriginal women as concubines. Mm. 
Oh, and, of course, they had offspring, and now all these people can throw their heritage back to some Aboriginal. So although there's no genuine, full-blooded Tasmanian Aborigines, there's a lot of ones that still have Aboriginal heritage because of the mixed with the white and the Aboriginal women. Yeah. It's a very controversial point in Tasmania, the Aborigine thing. So a lot of white people sort of say, well, they shouldn't, be claiming all this place but I mean when you look at it overall the whole of Australia belonged to the Aborigine I mean the English come and took it off them Um, so originally it was all their land anyway and now they're sort of arguing but I'm not going to get into (laughs) No, I'm I'm German descent so (laughs) that's worse (laughs) Indigenous Australians don't go much on lighthouses because all of their best valuable land was taken and built on lighthouses. And they had the same problem in New Zealand. The oh, government what do you just mean took, the best available land? Well, like Ediston and that was their favourite hunting grounds. And when, the, well, it was back in the government time when they took over the land. So they took over huge areas of land for the lighthouse. Some of them, you know, it was 100 acres for the precinct. Because back in those days, the lighthouse keeper, they run sheep, cattle, to, to, mm, to okay. supply themselves with food and all that. So they had these huge areas of land and they just took it. Whether the Aboriginals were there or not, they took it. And of course, uh, like Ediston, they've handed all their land back to them. Uh, when we were in New Zealand, the Maoris had the same problem. They, the government just took their land and they've been fighting ever since to get it back. But so probably... Aboriginals are not that keen because lighthouses were built. So I don't think they have an actual lot to do with it. You mentioned before about uh, Torres Strait folklore in the area. Um, Do you know much about the history of lighthouses in that region and the Indigenous slash Torres Strait population and interactions? So, um, yeah, there most probably wasn't a lot, I suppose. The, um, so Booby Island is the main one. You've got Goods Island, which is just um, near Thursday Island. Uh, we never really spent much time there. Um, I, I think there was a bit of interaction there, but it, it was mainly just when they came out. Um, so when I was talking before about the Cape ships, there was also one called the Lumen, which used to look after the Torres Strait area, and that was predominantly crewed by the Torres Strait Islanders. And they were they were great guys to work with. They oh, were so really? Much fun. So the indigenous yeah. uh, Torres Strait Islander population were actually involved. Yeah. In shipping. Yep. So they um. Yep. So they'd be out doing the maintenance. They'd be you know building footpaths and and doing all that sort of stuff. And um, they were always great fun when they come ashore. They were always so friendly and so happy, which the Torres Strait Island people are. Um, they um. Apart from that, I mean, there was only really the two main lighthouse, those two lighthouses there. There was a few um, smaller ones that are on shipping channels, but they had no, they didn't have any um, lighthouse keepers on them. They, there was no other lighthouse keepers or manned lighthouses in the Torres Straits apart from those two. Rain Island, which wasn't really a lighthouse, um, which has got a fair bit of history. I think there may have been a bit of um, Indigenous involvement in that one, but most of them, to be honest, because of the size of the islands, there wasn't really any Indigenous population in the area or on the islands. Well, having said that, it's not quite true. So Cape Cleveland, there's reports, um, and or not reports, but there's um, history there where um, some guys were shipwrecked 
And one of those guys actually ended up living with a local tribe for a number of years before um, integrating back, being found um, and integrating back into the population. And this is going back in the, much um, probably the late 1800s. Sandy Cape with um, Eliza Fraser, you know, the shipwreck there was, um, there's a fair bit of history on that where they were taken in. Some were killed by the, um, the, um, Aboriginal population on the island, but some of them were also taken in until they were rescued later on. But most of those islands, even Fraser, there was no, when, by the time we got there, there was no Indigenous people living, uh, left living on the island. So there's, on that side, of it, there's not really a lot of history between them, apart from those, you know, the ones where the, were working or employed by the Department of Transport and stuff like that. There wasn't really a lot. Um, Besides Rotten Nest, which, um, Sort of, Rottnest has a bit of a tragic past as being a place where they sent Aboriginal people from around the state because obviously they were coming from all, you know, Pilbara, Kimberley, different places, and then all of a sudden they're on an island off the coast of Western Australia. So Rottnest, its early history isn't a good one. I know there was one, uh, I think it might have even been at Cape Levique, where the Aboriginal people would bring fish um, and they'd swap it for tobacco. So the keepers would obviously have their ration of tobacco. So there was a bit of swapping tobacco for fish, which would have been good for the keepers. And I suppose in those days, tobacco was a tradable commodity. I know that Mrs Connolly, who was at Kate Lewin, I know when she was up north, but that was the Northern Territory Cape Don, she said that, uh, one of the local late Aboriginal ladies did actually work for, well, come and help her out. And it sounded like they had quite a good interaction there. Um, uh, so, yeah, her comments were quite complimentary and it seemed like there was quite a good relationship there. But as far as the rest of it goes, I haven't really heard a lot of interaction between the people. Quite often, I think, with some of the keepers' wives, they were isolated. Um, uh, you know, the guys have got their job to do, so they wouldn't have had a lot of outlets, you know, the, the mother, the wife. But it seems like from a couple of times and I've read about this, Mrs Connolly dealing with the local people, that there was a bit of – maybe there was a bit of a link because they're isolated and so they could come to some, I suppose, an understanding of each other's situation or – prejudices were put aside and hopefully they they sort of coexisted quite well um, because they had something in common, which was that isolation, possibly. Uh, Edison was, uh, uh, you know, there's, there, there are uh, uh, middens and things out there. It was an Aboriginal area originally before the, the white man moved in and built a lighthouse there and that's how they got it back again. It was one of the areas that they, they pushed for and got and... Uh, so I think that's how that happened. So uh, amps are still look after the light, but uh, but the, the station itself is uh, now part of the Aboriginal uh, community. I might go back to one of the questions earlier about, you mentioned that the Cape ships seem to be primarily based up in northern Australia, so Queensland, yeah. Northern Territory, Northern WA. Yep. Could you speak much about their interactions in the Torres Strait Island region, okay. particularly from the angle um, of you know, the Indigenous yep. population? Well, 
because the Kate Kate Morton and Lumen did a lot of work in the Torres Strait region, we had several Indigenous crew members who lived in the islands. These men were excellent mariners because they'd grown up surrounded by the sea and driving boats. They were great additions to our crew and would often bring their guitars to sea and sing in the crew mess when they were off duty. Um, We also had a navigational aids workshop in Thursday Island, uh, supervised by a man called Cole Gladstone. He'd been there for years and had an excellent relationship with the Torres Strait Island community. And he was the reason that we were able to install our navigational aids in remote sites up there, many of which would have had special significance to the Indigenous community. Are you aware if the Indigenous community have always been this involved in terms of the light stations and their servicing? I know that we were always keen to um, employ Indigenous people when it was possible, but it was often not possible because of the qualification requirements that existed to work in the maritime industry. So uh, uh, sometimes, even though we would have liked to employ employ more Indigenous people, we just simply couldn't find uh, Indigenous people with the required qualifications. And why were you keen to employ Indigenous people? Well, mainly because our ships worked in areas that, you know, the remote areas where there was very high Indigenous populations and, uh, and, and also they were part of the Australian government and the government, of course, was keen to have um, a, an employment policies which gave opportunities for everybody. And you mentioned the qualifications required I recall you mentioned that you'd been able to waive most of them but unfortunately not all of the barriers we we did employ on the Kate Morton a deck cadet who uh, went to the Australian Maritime College in Launceston and did his sea time on the Kate Morton and he was an Aboriginal Um, when he finished his time we weren't able to offer him a full-time job, so he went to another shipping company and we were keen to have another deck cadet uh, to replace him. And, and because that arrangement had worked so well, we were keen to make that another Indigenous um, uh, school graduate. I approached the Maritime College in Launceston and normally to get into the Maritime College you needed to have completed Year 12 Uh, But I persuaded them to waive all of the um, entry requirements except for the need to have mathematics and physics, which were basic essentials of the the, the course they were going to be doing and just wasn't possible for someone to get through their course if they didn't have those subjects. So then I approached the uh, Commonwealth Employment Service and asked them to help us in finding someone who might be interested in this kind of work and they came back and they couldn't find anyone. So I thought, well, since we'd had such good experience with the uh, Torres Strait Islanders as ratings, I contacted uh, the local high school on, on Thursday Island and asked if they might have a student who would meet, would have the physics and maths necessary to, to meet the minimum entry requirements that the Australian Maritime College had agreed to. And they told me that they didn't offer physics or maths at the required level for these students to do those courses. So that meant that anybody who lived in Thursday Island and did their education there could not achieve the requirement 
that was necessary for them to go to the Maritime College. And the closest school that did offer those courses was in Cairns. So when I realised that um, it was going to be very difficult to find anybody who met even the more relaxed entry requirements that the college had agreed to, we basically very reluctantly gave up on the search. Seems you're up against a, 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 a huge structural systematic gap, really, that isn't really resolved without re- allocating resources beyond your remit, you know, setting up the, exactly. the system exactly. in that way. It's almost doomed always to fail. And, you know, you do wonder could they have offered a introductory course, you know, recognising that they haven't previously had that qualification well, but going over and above you know, this is going way off, off where we, we started from. But after I left Amster, I qualified as a mathematics teacher and I worked in, as a teacher for many years and eventually did a PhD and went to Queensland University of Technology and worked in mathematics education. And while I was there, we actually worked on a project that was funded by BHP designed to try and find ways of improving um, Indigenous uh education or education for Indigenous kids, particularly with a view to getting more um, graduates through science and maths courses because BHP was keen to uh, employ local people, remembering that they also work in very remote parts of Australia and couldn't do so because they lacked the people that, that lived in those parts of Australia lacked the education BHP needed. So um, out one of the or the part of the project we were involved in was actually working with schools in um, areas of high Indigenous population, trying to improve the way they taught particularly mathematics in order to try and find, to create more people who might eventually go to university and become the engineers and other people that PHP wanted to employ. That's quite so, heartening. Yes. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And well done to you as well. Oh, yes, yeah, so that systemic problem existed, uh, still exists. Still exists. Sounds yeah. like there are some steps being taken to bridge the gap, but. Well, there uh, are, but the it's a very slow process and people who put money in typically want to have results at the end and because it's such a slow process and it's very difficult to link the inputs directly to the outputs, it's, you know, sometimes hard to to persuade people that this is a worthwhile area to invest in, including, I might add, state government education departments. When I looked into um, maritime employment in the Indigenous space, when I had all my my qualifications changed over from the the Navy, it took a year. Um, And then I looked into the Indigenous side of things and I was like, wow, yeah, it was quite shocking when I found out how many people were actually employed in the um, in the maritime sector. And it's because it's, it, there's a number of reasons for that. But if it took me a year to get all my stuff pushed through, imagine how difficult it is for um, Indigenous guys and girls um, living in communities or, you know, anywhere in the country, really, that want to get into maritime that, that don't have access to the same um, systems uh, that I was fortunate to have with, with the Navy. So... Um, we looked into the Close the Gap program to see if we, uh, how we could work with government to achieve the goals of increasing employment and training. And then we just uh, we decided that was the best purpose for the ship to um, she could still maintain her museum status um, and we could actually do something positive by um, 
training people and helping them with uh, gaining employment. So that obviously was a wildly complex and high varietal snapshot of the various touch points that people have had with the first Australians and definitely not the full story. But my my big takeaway is as much darkness as there was back in the day and first Australia's interactions with lighthouses in particular, as we've heard from Lynn and CJ, there are efforts going forward. Thank you so much for bringing together all of those collective voices and their stories about First Nations and people and lighthouses because I think it does, it actually knocks back your first initial contention, which is that there's very little about First Australians' interactions with lighthouses because from some of the observations made by your interviewees, it actually shows that there were and it's very similar in the way that women's stories were not enabled to be told because of the systems of oppression and the fact that our narrative telling is just simply um, not interested in the interests of minorities. One of the interviews that really um, piqued my interest, mostly because of the the topic he talked about, was um, Paul's observations about Rottnest Island. So I actually came from WA and grew up there And Rottnest Island is this sensationally beautiful, idyllic tourist island. What a lot of people don't realise is that um, it used to be a quarantine station and then it used to be an Aboriginal prison camp. So they actually brought a lot of Aboriginal people from the Western Australian region in the 1800s, imprisoned them and starved them there. And one of the interesting observations about their particular lighthouse, if you have the um, pleasure of of seeing it, is that it was actually built on Aboriginal convict labour and a lot of people died in the process of establishing um, Rottnest Island for what it is today. So that's um, Rottnest Island on Wajuknuga land and there's been this process of trying to reconcile there but you know it's really really difficult to erase many many hundreds of years of oppression and um, the destruction of colonization in parts of Western Australia and Tasmania it's nothing more than just it's genocide essentially what happened in those places. I was going to say what you've just described you know imprisoning people and forcing them to work you know, towards their own death really is genocide and I didn't know that history about Rottnest and I can imagine it wasn't just happening there. Have you seen the movie The Nightingale that was produced, written and directed by Jennifer Kent? I haven't seen it but I remember seeing the trailer around that time and thought it was, and it was. I was thinking more of it in the context of women but also, yeah, I can see there's definitely um, an Aboriginal story there to be told as well. For sure, you know, for anyone listening who hasn't seen that movie, if you even want but a small taste of potentially what happened back then in terms of the feeling of oppression and prejudice, watch that movie because I think it does encapsulate or reflect some of the experiences of those times. I think it was Mike who um, very quickly talked about the story of Truganini. And, again, this is something I was drawn to because um, where I 
I uh, used to live the suburb of Carnegie in um, in Victoria. They've got a whole road dedicated to, to Truganini. And I think during Christmas, they actually published a book about the history of Truganini. And the reason she was someone who has almost like a mythical status is because she's often talked about as being the last um, Aboriginal Tasmanian in Tasmania because of the genocide that happened in Tasmania, whereby there are actually not a lot of Aboriginal people there anymore because of this systemic genocidal regime that the colonialists um, essentially inflicted on the people of Tasmania. Another story that I think, thanks to the book and hopefully other historians, does come to the forefront of people's minds and is known now, but you know, all of that lost time, of that lost learning, hopefully we can take take forward as we go through um, this reconciliation process. My reflections on this part have very much been the dark side of lighthouse history and, you know, shining a light on people who probably didn't get the good end of the stick when it came to this profession and this industry. And, mm. you know, where there are winners, there are losers. And unfortunately for us, Often, yes, some in some cases, the women, but very much the Indigenous people. I guess for me, I still think that there may very well be a lot more Aboriginal lighthouse, maybe not keepers, but definitely other stories that are relevant to lighthouses that we're not hearing or we're not able to find through our traditional means because we're essentially, well, we're the colonisers um, and we're not listening to the storytellers and I think all the stuff that we've talked about in terms of the structural inequalities the barriers sort of the dark side of colonization those are things that that do inform the fact that our history is very skewed because I actually think those people with those connections to lighthouses are out there Um, you don't get a, a more sort of traditional storytelling culture than um our first nations Thank you firstly to the contributors to this episode, Peter Braid, Lynn Carters, Ron Felberg, Mike Jenner, Joe Kyagis and Paul Sophilis. Thanks, of course, to my co-host, Anna. Up next, we continue our conversation on First Australians with Reuben Berg, member of the First People's Assembly in Victoria Progressing Treaty and member of the Heritage Council of Victoria. Instead of the usual post-take, I encourage you to visit firstpeoplesvic.org and yurokjusticecommission.org.au. That's Y-O-O-R-R-O-K-justicecommission.org.au. Thank you for listening. Light. House. Light. 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 House. Light house. Lighthouse. Thanks for having me on your show. I've been a long time listener. I really love your work.